This morning's scripture reading is from the third chapter of the book of Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This morning we're in week five now, the fifth and final installment of this series we've been in called Breaking Free, in which we've been looking at the resources that Christianity offers us uh, when it comes to dealing with negative emotions that are universal. So we looked at anger, we've looked at guilt, we've looked at anxiety and depression. And this morning in the fifth week, I want us to talk about inferiority, inferiority. I tried to think of a different word besides that one because it's six syllables. It's kind of awkward to say, but it gets at what, what I want us to, to look at better than any other term I could think of. So that's what we're stuck with, inferiority. And I'd like to look at it under three headings. First, the two-headed dragon. Second, the glory vacuum. And then third, adoption. Those will be the, the three sections this morning. The two-headed dragon, the glory vacuum, and adoption. And we'll take them one at a time. So first, the, the two-headed dragon. And by using that heading, by using that image, what I want to drive home, kind of sear on your imagination, is this idea that inferiority is just one half of a, a twin problem. It, it can manifest itself in one of two ways. And the reason we need to get this straight right from the beginning is because some of you, when I said we're going to be talking about inferiority this morning, you thought, well, finally, you know, in this series, one that I don't struggle with. You know, my problem is the opposite. My problem isn't thinking I'm beneath others. I have a superiority complex. My problem is thinking I'm better than everybody. That's what I need to work on. But those are the exact same thing. There's two different forms of the exact same thing. Glenn Gabbard it's this prominent American psychiatrist who's a professor at Baylor Medical School. And in the 1980s, he was the one that, that kind of parsed this out. He says, narcissistic personality disorder has two subtypes. They're both narcissistic personality disorder. The first subtype is what we think of with narcissism, which is the grandiose subtype. But the second subtype, he said, is the insecure subtype. And they're both narcissism. And that's actually, it was nascent in Adler, all the way back in the early 1900s. I want to read you something he says. He, Alfred Adler was the guy that brought that phrase, inferiority complex, into kind of common parlance. Adler says this over 100 years ago. He said, we should not be astonished if in the cases where we see an inferiority complex, we find a superiority complex more or less hidden. On the other hand, 
if we inquire into a superiority complex and study its continuity, we can always find a more or less hidden inferiority complex. So there are two sides of the same coin, and what makes them the same? What, what unites them? You know, they're two-headed dragon. What's the body of the dragon? What do they have in common? It's this obsession with yourself, and specifically this obsession with how you rank with respect to other people. There's a verse, actually. One of the things I'm trying to do by quoting those psychologists is to set up something, uh, which is something I've been trying to do throughout the series, show you just how remarkable the Bible is and how the Bible anticipates a lot of these theories thousands of years ago. And there's a verse in Galatians uh, chapter 5, Galatians 5.26, where Paul basically says the same thing, that they, they come from the same root. The verse goes, uh, let us not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. So three terms, let us not be conceited, that's the root, provoking and envying. The provoking is the kind of superiority, the envying is the inferiority, and he says they're both forms of being conceited. I want to spend a couple of minutes with this verse in this first section and look at those terms that he uses, conceited, provoking, and envying. Provoking, you know, that's obviously uh, like getting a rise out of somebody, but it's always rooted in this, this implied or suggested superiority. You know, you're, you're looking down at the other person, challenging them, saying, you know, prove that you're better than me. So I think about my girls when they provoke each other. You know, it's always about some good thing that they did that the other one didn't do or some good thing that they have that the other one didn't have. You know, it's this like, hey, how's it going? Me? You know, nothing much, nothing going on, just, just sucking on this lollipop. <laughs> oh, mom bought it for me while we were out. Oh, she, she didn't buy you one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I feel, I feel terrible. Oh, wow. It's provoking. And, and they do it on purpose. I don't even think my girls like lollipops. But they do like to have something their sister doesn't have. They do like to provoke. And then the flip side of that, the flip side of the provocation is the envying. That's what the other person feels, you know, that doesn't have the lollipop. It's a bad feeling, this feeling that you have less or that you are less. And looking at the other person, I wish I had a lollipop. I was talking to another uh, dad in the church, and he was telling me this amazing story about, uh, so he's got two kids. And a while back, he had two free days, and so he spent a day one-on-one with each of the kids, back-to-back. So first with his daughter one day, and then the next day with his son. And he was saying how he had this amazing day with his son, you know, jam-packed from the wake-up till bedtime, just nonstop activity. And he's tucking his son in bed at night, and he says, you know, this was such a great day. I had so much fun with you today. And he was thinking his son would say something back like, you know, yeah, it was the best day ever, you know, like, you're the best dad ever. But all all his son said, the only question he asked was, was today better than yesterday? <laughs> was this better than my sister's day? That's all he cared about. See, it doesn't matter how good the day is intrinsically. All that matters is the comparison. And there's so many studies on this now that happiness is 100% comparative. It, you know, you can be fine, completely happy without a lollipop until you see somebody else that has one. And then all of a sudden you're not happy. Or you can be so happy, over the moon, with one lollipop, and then you see somebody that has two, and you're not happy anymore. 
it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not just for kids. You know, we're not any different as adults. This is how we, we measure ourselves against each other. And, you know, it's, it used to be in the old days, this had to be done in person, you know, so it was at cocktail parties and, you know, over coffee, for that matter, when you go to somebody's house or at PTA meetings or business lunches, you're always seeing how you stack up. That was the, the cute, nostalgic old days. Because now, this comparing, this provoking, and this envying, we do 24-7, constantly. You've got your little provoking and envying machine right there in your pocket, and you pull it out anytime you want, anytime you have a free second to just see what's going on. And you can do one of two things. You can either do a little post and say, hey, look at this lollipop I got. <laughs> or you can look and see, oh man, I wish I had a lollipop. You know, I wish I had that. And you say, well, it's not like that for me. You know, for me, it's totally innocent. And when I post something good, all my friends are just happy for me. They don't feel envious. And I'm just totally happy for my friends. And, and maybe that's true, you know? I mean, maybe your heart is just so much purer than mine. And you don't struggle with this kind of thing. But I just challenge you to, to ask yourself, what percentage of the way you use these different networks or whatever it is, what percentage of it has some element of provocation or envy? You know, are you even aware of your feelings as you're going through this feed? There's addiction. We know how addiction works. You have to have really strong feelings and really bad feelings, and they have to cycle. And that cycle keeps you hooked. Well, that's social media. You know, you got this really strong, good feeling from posting something good, and then a bad feeling from seeing something that you don't like. And you're not even aware of it. We're not even aware of these, these very strong feelings that we're having as we're going through this. So, you know, I'm not saying, obviously there's a lot of good things about it. And it's good to stay connected with each other. And it's good to stay informed. So it's certainly not all bad. But just think about it. Think about what percentage of it has to do with comparing, with this two-headed dragon of provoking and envying. So that's the first section of the sermon, the the two-headed dragon. And the idea is that we're always cycling. We're always on this roller coaster of feeling good or feeling bad, feeling up or feeling down based on how we stack up with other people. And you can't get off, you know. It feels great when you're up, but you're going to come down eventually. And the question is, why? Why do we do this? Why do we have this need to compare? So that takes us to the second section of the sermon. First, the two-headed dragon. Secondly, this morning, the glory vacuum, the glory vacuum. So we talked about provoking and envying. What we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, and what I want to talk about in this second section of the sermon, is this other word in the verse, Galatians 5.26, conceit, conceited. Let us not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. So many interesting things about this word. Let me just mention a couple of them before I get to the main point I want to make here. The first is just what we said already, which is that he says superiority and inferiority have the same root being conceited. The second thing is the English word conceited is pretty interesting in that, you know, you think of a person, uh, a conceited person as being like stuck up or full of themselves. But if you think about that word uh, conceit, well, what, what does that word mean? You think about like a literary conceit. A literary conceit is something that you pretend is true for the sake of the story. And that really applies to this provoking and envying. You know, another way of putting that would be uh, 
conceit. There's no conceit without deceit. There's always a deception, which is how it is with our social media. You know, you, you say, uh, well, I, I just want to share my life with somebody. Well, no, you want to share the part of your life that you want them to see. You know, there's always deception involved when we play this game. I mean, just if you, if you think that that's not true, why don't, we, why don't we, to balance out the last 10 years that we've been doing this, why don't we just for 10 years only post things that make us look bad? You know, just only, like, here's what my house really looks like. <laughs> here's the frozen burrito I have for dinner most nights. You know, or here's the bag of chips that I binged on. Or here's the bottle of wine that I opened and finished without any help from anybody else. Or here's a video of me yelling at my kids. You know, that's, that's the other side. But we don't talk about that side. So, so conceit. It's always a conceit. There's always deception involved when we play this provoking and envying game. But like I said, that's not even the main point. The main point in this second section, the glory vacuum, is uh, we see it not by looking at the English word conceit, which is interesting in itself, but rather by looking at the Greek word that Paul uses there that's translated conceit. And the Greek word that he uses is this really interesting Greek word. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament. And it's this word kenodoxa. Uh, doxa means glory, like the doxology, like talking about the glory of God. Keno means empty. So kenodoxa, this word conceited, is this word empty of glory. Empty of glory. And what it's getting at is, is, why do we need to compare? Why do we need to always play this game? Because we have no sense of intrinsic worth. We're empty of glory intrinsically. We've talked before, we talked about this on the All Church Retreat a few years back, how the word glory, in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word for glory is the same as the word for weight, like W-E-I-G-H-T, heavy. And to have glory means you have weight. Another way of putting that would be that you matter. Even in English, we use the word matter like that. You know, matter is stuff. Matter is mass, particles. And if you matter, you have stuff. You have mass. Or even think about like in a legal case, if something is immaterial, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. It's not, it's not related. And we all have this sense of intrinsically not mattering. There's this, this emptiness, this glory emptiness, canodoxa. And so because of that, that's why we have to get our, our sense of value from how we stack up. And like we said a second ago, it can feel great if you stack up great, but it doesn't feel so good when you don't stack up. But all that just raises another question, which is, well, why do we have no intrinsic sense of worth? If, if uh, this comparing, if this provoking and this envying comes from being empty of glory ourselves, well, how did that happen? How do we become empty of glory? And what the Bible says is, and this has been a repeated theme here on Sundays, so if you've been coming for a while, you've heard this over and over again. What the Bible says is that that sense of being empty of glory, that sense of not mattering, comes from this disconnected relationship we have with God our Father. And what we've said on multiple occasions before is that it's easy to see how that works because it works the same way on a human level. You know, if, when you're disconnected from your human father, when you have a bad relationship with your dad, with your earthly dad, it causes all sorts of problems and, and messes you up and creates this vacuum that you're always trying to fill. I want to read you what one woman wrote about this. She said, 
I'm struggling with fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. Then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove to myself over and over again that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I don't think it ever will. That is, uh, it's from an old, old Vanity Fair interview with Madonna. And she's talking about how this is what's driven me. She's also talked about a lot and has songs about her relationship with her dad and the lack thereof or how abusive it was. And she says, because of that, I never feel like I'm good enough. So what you see there, and we talked about this on Easter, actually, is that a lot of times that, that vacuum can drive you to achieve and excel, and you can do a lot because of that. You know, Barack Obama's talked about this on a number of occasions, this experience of not having a relationship with dad and that, that hole and how that drove him to, to want to achieve. And so there can be good results from it in the world. Like, it can, it can be a good thing in the world. But what those people will tell you who do achieve is that no matter how high you get, no matter how many friends you have or how many people are in the crowd or how much money you make or how much success you have or whatever the metric is, it doesn't do anything to, to fill that hole, that vacuum that you feel of not mattering intrinsically. And if it works that way with our human fathers, then how much more so does it work that way with our relationship with our Father in Heaven? It's the same thing for all of us, because even if you had a great dad, you didn't have a perfect dad. And what the Bible says is that spiritually... Spiritually, this glory vacuum is created by having a broken relationship with our Father in Heaven, which is why we're driven to need to compare, because it's the only place we can find a sense of worth. So that's the second section of the sermon, the glory vacuum. And the idea here is that the reason we're always comparing, the reason we're always cycling between inferiority and superiority is because we don't have a sense of worth intrinsically. And the reason we don't have a sense of worth intrinsically is because we have this broken relationship with our Father in Heaven. Let's move now into the third and final section today, which is adoption. Lastly this morning, number three, adoption. I said a few minutes ago that uh, that word, that interesting word, kenodoxa, conceded, it only appears twice in the New Testament. I want to show you the other place it appears now. It's also in Paul, and he says this. He says, therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. There's the word conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So he's describing the type of person we all want to be. You know, instead of provoking and envying, instead of rivalry, and getting our sense of self-worth from how we stack up compared to others. He says, what if you were just this person that could humbly serve others and treat other people's interests as as important as yourself? In other words, what if you could be genuinely as happy for your friend or for your enemy, for that matter, when that good thing happens to them as when it happened to you? And we all want to be that person, but none of us are. He's telling us to be that person. 
He's commanding us to be that person. He's saying this is the standard for Christian behavior. But the question is, how does he expect us to get there? And what he says is, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's how you're supposed to do it. What does that have to do with anything? What does Jesus have to do with this? Well, the interesting thing about Jesus is he's the only person who has ever lived who's had a perfect relationship with his father. And that's the source of his strength. You know, we think of... uh, So when you first try to get away from this uh, game of finding your worth from other people and how you stack up, the first place our minds naturally go is we think, well, I'll just just, uh, validate myself. You know, I'll just believe in myself and my own sense of worth. That's, you know, I can kind of have my own standards. Well, it never works. Human beings cannot generate their own sense of worth or worthiness. It has to come from the outside. And you see that even with Jesus. Even with Jesus Christ, it doesn't come from within. His sense of worth, his sense of authority always comes from the outside. It comes from this relationship he has with his father. And so he's saying this all the time, you know, when he's, people are mad at him or people are, are against him. It's always like, well, I don't care what you think because of what my dad thinks, of what my father thinks of me. The place you see it clearest of all is actually at his baptism, where he comes up out of the water and there's this voice, this audible voice. This only happens two or three times in the New Testament. Usually when God speaks, he doesn't speak like this. But this is one of the rare occasions where there's an audible voice. He comes up out of the water. Everybody on the shore hears it. And God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And those are the words that none of us have heard, at least not on that level. You know, those are, those are the words. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased that none of us, at least not to the extent that Jesus had, have heard. That's where the glory vacuum comes from for us, and that's why Jesus didn't have it, because he had perfect love coming into him. He had perfect love that he was receiving from his Father. What did he do with it? All that glory, all that intrinsic sense of worth that he had, what did he do with it? I want to read you the rest of this Philippians 2 passage now. Paul says, if you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the key word in all those lines, all those beautiful lines, is the word emptied. Remember what we were saying? We were saying conceit, being conceited, being puffed up and having to fake that you matter and you're important. It comes from feeling empty of glory. And there's only one person that's ever lived that's actually had that intrinsic sense of glory. And what he did with it is he emptied himself. Same Greek word there, keno. He emptied himself. He took all that glory that he had and he poured it out. And not for no reason. He poured it out so there could be a, a glory transfer. So on the cross, you know, Paul's talking about the cross here. He can't talk about, you notice the way Paul's mind works. He cannot talk about serving others. He cannot talk about having this intrinsic sense of worth 
without talking about the cross. That's immediately where his mind goes. Why is that? Because on the cross is where the, the glory transfer happened. So Jesus, at his baptism, had heard, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet on the cross, we see him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is that? Because he emptied himself. He poured out his glory on all of us so that we could hear, this is my beloved son, or this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, from God, the Father. That's the transfer. That's how we get filled up. And if you hear that, then it changes everything. You know, then, then the, the provoking and the envying stops. You heard that scripture reading this morning at the beginning from Zephaniah 3. It's a really remarkable passage. And you know, one of the remarkable things about it is these lines about God singing over you. You know, he sings over you like a father over his child. He rejoices over you with loud singing, it says. But to me, the line that is even more amazing than those lines about God singing over us is that line where it says, he will quiet you with his love. He will quiet you with his love. In other words, just hush, just stop with all the comparing and all the striving and all the trying to one-up and all the feeling bad when you lose. Stop with all that because it doesn't matter because you're my kid. You're my kid. And I don't care if you never get higher than a B-. And I don't care if you always get picked last for the team. And I don't care if nobody wants to take you to the dance. And I don't care if you get thrown to in the last play of the game in the end zone for the winning touchdown and you drop the ball. I just don't care because you're my kid and I love you because of that. So none of the rest of it matters. That's the only way you can stop playing this game. This game of trying to convince yourself that you matter by how you stack up is if you hear him say that to you through Jesus. If there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's how it has to happen. So there's, as we close, I think there's two types of people here this morning. There's some of you who have never felt like you stacked up. And there's always this gnawing sense of inadequacy. And the message for you is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've got this kind of relationship with God. But then on the flip side, there may be some others of you here this morning who always felt like you stacked up pretty well. And you do have a sense of confidence that comes from the school you went to or the, the neighborhood you live in or where your kids go to school or whatever, how much money you make. And the message for you is the same. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You have no more worth, no more weight than the panhandler that you pass every day on the street. And God wants you to stop playing the game and stop striving and trying so hard and come home to him and find your true worth. Let's pray. Father, we just want to feel good, and we know we don't a lot of times, and we're looking for some way to change that. And we've got some 
techniques that have worked for us, but then they always wear off. I ask this morning that you would come and by your spirit speak into our hearts. There's that place where scripture talks about how you shed your love abroad in our hearts. I ask that you do that this morning. I ask that you give us this sense of belonging to you, of having been adopted by you. I ask that you would allow us to hear you singing over us and that you would quiet us with your love. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.